rock, paper, scissors, go. <laughs> Good I feel enough. like that wasn't the proper rock, paper, scissors in any country. <laughs> <laughs> Merging the two. Oh, shucks. Uh, well, welcome everybody to episode 20 of Ultra Pro Max. This is the podcast where we have fun talking about app development and the Apple ecosystem. So uh, we're going to go out of left field here just because we kind of started talking about this beforehand. But we're, we're wondering, what is the proper Star Wars viewing order? This is the most crucial nerd uh, app developer question we have. So I was watching episode two with my son. My wife and I watched it with him a couple nights ago. And I saw in the Disney Plus app that they had in viewing order. And I was quite curious. So I saw, of course, they're doing episode one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. But then they had Andor in there, uh, put in there. They had The Mandalorian. They had Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and Rebels in there. And then I think one or two other things. And it struck me. So it was I, timeline order. It, timeline order. Timeline. Yes. Okay. Yes. It, it struck me as I wonder how my son would have responded if we had done it in timeline order because obviously you have massive graphics shifts between them. But would that be a cooler experience to do it? Because there, these moments kept coming up where he's like, wait a minute, is this whose son or daughter or parent is this? And I would pause really quickly and explain because now we've gone back so long and he's trying to understand how it relates to Darth Vader or Luke. And it was interesting most of us grew up with that if we're old enough, right, where we saw it in the order it was released. But I wonder if it would be fun to watch it in a different viewing order. So that's, that's my fun little nerdy question. I recently started watching through Star Wars with my kids, and we decided to do it in chronological order rather than release order. And I found that by the time I got to A New Hope that kind of a lot of the fun had disappeared from it because – all of a sudden, I was trying to explain, oh, well, you know who Leia is, but imagine you don't. You know who this Luke guy is, but you, the, if you were seeing this for the first time when it was released, you wouldn't know who that is. So just pretend like you don't. And it led me to believe that the best viewing order is alphabetical. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be just as confused, honestly. And it's interesting. So my wife and I kept looking at each other during episode two. It's like, do you remember this? No, I don't remember this. It's been 20 years easily since I've watched it. So I, because I saw it in theaters. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot that I think I just blanked out, but it was, it was fine. It's kind of considered not the best, like one of the lowest quality, um, but it was okay. My son did not enjoy the romantic scenes. He very much wanted to fast forward those. Oh, but the soundtrack on Lake... What is that? Is that like Cuomo? Like Cuomo? In Italy? In Italy, yeah. The the Anakin and Leia scene on Naboo, it's shot on Lake Cuomo. That's a princess. Really? Uh, Senator Amidala, I believe you meant to say. Did I say, what, did I say Leia? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody kick me off this podcast. Padme Amidala. All right. You were Anyways, a fluke. I, I love, thank you. Bye. And welcome to episode 20. <laughs> Shucks. I think I'm going to have to agree with Saudi on this one. I, I do think that order of release, because that's the thing. We are, we're always like, and film buffs will always talk about how the greatest reveal in cinema history was when Darth Vader was Luke's father, or when you find out that Leia was actually Luke's sister and that they had kissed and, you know, all this stuff. Whereas like you're watching it in timeline order. You're like, they're, what? they're siblings. Why are they kissing? Because you don't remember that nobody knew that. All right, so last question on this. Uh, I want to watch Lord of the Rings with my with my son, 
and my wife suggested watching The Hobbit first. And I had this gut reaction of, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So what is your takes? The Hobbit is fundamentally, it's a kid's movie. Except for the really deep, dark, Sauron-y scenes, which maybe you consider skipping, I think it was made as a kid's book and it was made as a kid's movie. And it gets a lot of flack for being a bad adaption. But I think if you can remove those dark scenes from it and Mm. watch it as a kid's movie, it's a lot more fun. Maybe there's a torrent or something somewhere of an edit where it combines, imagine just combining those three Hobbit movies, get rid of all of the Lake Town stuff, get rid of the Dark Sauron. The romance. Um, Radagast Forest stuff as much as I love Radagast. Yeah, get rid of the Keeley romance and just make it a single movie. If that exists, watch that first. So apparently those kind of fan edits do exist. I've never sat down and watched one, but I, I remember reading about one that when you strip away a bunch of that, there's a fantastic movie in there that is quite fun to watch. I've just not done that. <laughs> well, maybe we should start a movie podcast at some point. Let's talk more about app development. And Joshua, uh, tell us a little bit about your design process working on apps in Teams, kind of more from a product design side than a uh, developer side, which is what we normally talk about. So tell us about that. Yeah, I thought this might be interesting to chat about because maybe you'll have some questions or feedback on how I do it. Because I'm not currently making an indie app, although I have dreams of it, and occasionally I'll pull out the old sketches and play with ideas, but I do work on apps in my day job. I've been doing that for quite a while. And it's interesting. I want to go with the smaller team aspect because I think that could be more relevant to people listening. Here's how my process works, and then I'd love any questions and thoughts on maybe challenge how I'm doing it. Often the way it'll work is a founder we'll say, hey, we have an idea for an app. We want to create this. We think that this is how it's going to work. We think this is the market segment. We think this is the need. Uh, Frankly, sometimes it's not even that detailed. It's just we have a cool idea. We have a little bit of money. Go build something. (laughs) Um, But I appreciate sometimes when founders have that. And then what I will do is ask a bunch of questions and then I'll walk through a visual process in a story mode here and see if this is helpful. I ask some questions. I learn about what the app is supposed to do, what they're hoping to accomplish. And then I screenshot a bunch of apps that I find have similar problems they're solving. So I lay out a massive board and it can be in any format, but I like to use Figma or Freeform of dozens of screenshots of apps that they don't need to be in the same vertical. So meaning if I'm working on a booking for an airplane app, I'm going to probably go look at how bookings and Airbnb are done. I don't need to look at other airplane apps exclusively, but I'll pull those up as well. I'm more looking at how does this interaction on an app get solved, for period, and it doesn't have to be in the same ecosystem or the same horizontal. And the way that helps when I've talked to founders, I've noticed they often get stuck in. I want my app to be like this other one that's in the exact same market. If you're looking too closely at the competitors, you'll just copy the competitors. So I often try to go outside of that and look at how things are done in, in completely different markets. Then what I do is I bring back a sketch. And this is usually a very simple hand-drawn sketch that says, here's where I think this app is going to go. And that sketch, this is what I love about making apps. At that point, sometimes the founders I'm working with will just go code it right based off that sketch. And then I'll give feedback and we'll actually just work in code from then on. That's probably my favorite thing to do. But depending on who I'm working with, sometimes I'll then go build out in full fidelity in Figma 
make it clickable, get all the UI elements in, and then they'll code that. And I've found that when I'm working with someone who we can talk at a sketch level, the app is usually going to be more fun to make because I don't want to spend weeks and weeks and weeks in Figma getting everything perfect without even knowing how this feels having it actually in my hand in an iPhone. So in a very at a very large scale, that's my process uh, that I have kind of been really enjoying. And the number one piece for me in that is drawing. I use by hand with an iPad. I draw stuff out on Freeform, and then I look at lots of screenshots of other apps. I would 100% agree with that, Joshua. I have noticed time and time and time again when I'm doing app development that there is no substitute for putting the app on my phone, even even getting it out of the Swift preview and onto a device that I can touch changes everything, just changes the entire dynamic. And also apologies for the rain sounds. It started raining kind of heavy here. So what are you going to do? It just turned into a tropical environment. <laughs> Soothing. ASMR on Ultra Pro Max. One of the ways that I've tried to get around that is Figma Mirror. It's a little app for the iPhone that will actually mirror the screen and Figma onto your phone. And I found it's the closest. You can't design a mobile view on a desktop and expect to really understand how it works. But if you can get it onto your mobile device, even through Figma Mirror, suddenly you realize, oh, that button is way too big. Oh, I need to move this down. Oh, I can't even see this thing. And so that does help a lot. But you're right. There's nothing like the developer handing me, um, maybe it's a test flight, maybe it's a, a, a some kind of a dev link. And then I get it on my device. I start tapping around. And then instantly, all the things that my so many of my assumptions are instantly modified, where I realize, oh, I nope, this this affordance uh, that's a fancy word for button or action. This affordance does not work, and we need to completely do something differently. Um, I'm curious for both of you, if you're not working with a designer, how do you kind of design it yourself, or or how does that process work? Oh boy, well, you know, I've actually been thinking about my own design, and I thought it might be fun to. We got to bring one of my designs on this channel so Joshua can rip it apart. I think that'd be kind of fun because uh, that'd be really. Fun. I I like to. I do tend to kind of design by the seat of my pants as I go, which I think is what a lot of developers do, especially people bring uh, starting out. On this last app, the app that I'm working on currently, I actually did design ahead of time in Figma, which was totally new for me. I'd never done that kind of thing before. So I kind of had to learn how to use Figma. But the reason I did it was because I was trying to win this client and I had to kind of propose a solution to their problem. And the best way to do that was to give them something tangible that they could kind of look through. And I also found that like having a design for when worrying about like product specifications and features, it's so much easier to talk about those when you have something tangible sitting in front of you. Because it's like, okay, user stories, everything just boils down and becomes so much more simple when you can look at an interface and the client can be like, okay, this is really cool. How do I do this? And I'm like, oh, well, you pop over here and you click this button and that'll do that for you. Like, oh, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What if, can we put that over here kind of a thing? Like it's just, it creates, now you have a common language with a non-developer to actually be able to have these kinds of specification conversations. So that was really cool for me. Um, Once I started actually developing, it looks... I mean, I guess the UI looks completely different. The UX is fairly similar, like where stuff is placed. But as for like, you know, design choices of font, color, uh, 
bevel, et cetera. That's all very different. But but yeah, that's kind of been my my approach as of late. Sadia, what about you? Yeah, somewhere in between the both of you. I do design by the seat of my pants to an extent, but then the very, very first thing that I do is I go and find a whole bunch of apps that do similar things to what I'm trying to do. So I guess I have a bit of an idea in my head of the the broad strokes, the fat marker sketches, just in my mind. And then I will just go trawling through my phone and looking for apps from Apple, apps that I like. Uh, I'll look at apps like Play, uh, which is a YouTube app, apps like anything by TapBots, CallSheet, that sort of thing. And I'll go, I really like the way they've done this. I, I like the way they've implemented that. And at the end of the day, I'm just trying to use Swift UI views without too much customization on top of them. And so it's pretty easy to just rip out, oh, I'll take that from that app and this from that app and sort of jumble them all together. And that's how I do the design. I love that. That's basically how I work. I'm pulling pieces from apps I see all the time. I just put into the show notes and maybe we'll add this into the show notes, two links. And if you guys can click on those, you'll see in the first link, a sketch of an app I did. And both of you can immediately look at that sketch and see, oh yeah, I understand mostly how this is work would work. Maybe yeah. I need to ask the designer a few questions, but I get it. And then if you click on the second link, you'll see basically the Figma that I then gave the developer that he built out into the actual app. But he didn't really even need the Figma because that hand sketch was actually enough for him to give me some stuff. And that's by default, if I can give that hand sketch, that's enough for me, um, depending on who I'm working with. These designs don't mean anything until you can actually have it in the hands of someone using it see how they respond to it <laughs> and then go from there um, and i've worked on apps where you have internal discussions for months and months and months never having something out in the wild for users to see and it's just demoralizing for the whole team yeah that's good i would echo what both of you guys are saying i uh to, to your point, Sadia, how often are we ever actually designing anything from scratch i used to use css quite a bit and now I'm into utility classes and just using full frameworks and never touching CSS again. And that's just amazing. It's wonderful. So why would we ever go back? And it's those sketches. It's those sketches of the way things feel and the way things work that are the most important. We're going to pivot here a little bit. And Joshua, you don't have an update for us about the Vision Pro. <laughs> yeah, I don't have one yet. Um probably going to have one here in a couple of days. So I've done a lot more just thinking about the Vision Pro, where it fits. I'm starting to play with ideas, but haven't been living in one yet. And you haven't hearing, been, have you, you haven't walked around the streets of New York City with it for 50 hours in a row or not yet. Like all these influencers are doing. <laughs> I got to be on a little scooter and <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I have been thinking a lot more just where it's going to fit into our lives. And I still land on, I'm excited because the spatial computing concept, this VR concept is now being talked about by my friends who never cared at all about anything from Meta, anything from Oculus. They, they never even knew they existed. Now they're coming up and saying, hey, doesn't Apple have something VR related? What do you think about that? So that alone makes it kind of interesting and exciting to see that couple years from now will this be part of the mainstream conversation and maybe that's a bad thing maybe we'll say this should never have happened just like many of us now wish social media did not exist the way it does but 
as someone who just enjoys technology and hardware and software, I am currently excited, currently looking forward to just seeing like this, even though this is incredibly expensive, it's not something anyone that I know is going to buy. It's put the conversation into the mainstream, which I that that is exciting for me still. We talked last week about how you were feeling a bit sick in the Vision Pro. And I have an update on that for you. Please. Which is that, so when I first got my my Vive, HTC Vive, and, you know, I've had a whole bunch of VR headsets since then, one of the things that continually comes up is IPD adjustment, interpupillary distance adjustments. So on your Vive and on your various different headsets, there's often a knob to be able to change the distance between the lenses. And usually that's a manual process of, of moving, moving the lenses manually. I remember when the Quest 2 came out, there was some concern because this thing only had three settings for your IPD, wide, narrow, and in between. That was a big problem because people with an IPD that didn't fit neatly in that range would start to feel a bit motion sick in the Quest 2. But at least I had those three different settings. What is IPD, by the way? It's the distance between the center of your eyes, the distance between your pupils into pupillary distance. And you can get that measured by any eye doctor or do it yourself. There's a like... If there's any optical, when I got some glasses years ago, I happen to know mine is 62. That's the number. Your range is going to be in the the, the 50s to the 60s for any adult. Um, and you, there's actually things online where you can print out a little ruler and do it yourself if you want to just understand what that is without going into an eye doctor. So when you said that you were feeling sick using someone else's headset, the first thing I thought was maybe the IPD was set incorrectly. And then I realized well, there's no knob on the vision mm. to change the IPD. So what's the go? So I found out in the intervening week that actually the Vision Pro automatically sets the diopter and the uh, interpupillary distance with motors that are built into the headset using the eye tracking. So the eye tracking cameras will, when you first put the headset on, and this is key for you, Joshua, when you first put the headset on, there is like an eye setup phase, mm -hmm. and that will uh, adjust the interpupillary distance on the device uh, for the main user. And what I think has happened is your colleague has put on the vision, set up their interpupillary distance, that has moved the lenses, and then when you put it on, the lenses haven't adjusted for your particular IPD. I think that's right. And this actually goes to a rant that Ben Thompson had last week on either Sharp Tech or Stratechery, which I appreciated. Just this, this frustration that you bought this incredibly expensive device and naturally your friends and family want to try it. But it, it's not for them. And that just that feels he uses the word hostile. It just feels bad where um, in this case, our company said, hey, we can, we can get a device. We just need you to both to, to share it for now because we don't know if this even has a future. So let's just have you both try to design it. That is a very reasonable request from a from a company for something this expensive. And it's just incredibly frustrating that uh, there's it's there are some workarounds, I think for me to get an experience that doesn't make me nauseous. 
but it does not seem at all to be thought of in any way for more than one person, which I get it. This is a very personal device. It's like an Apple Watch, maybe where one person buys it. It's it's been beautifully designed and customized just for them to be perfect versus a VR headset, maybe at a theme park that it's just general. It's going to be a shoddy experience for everybody. That's fine. They're like, no, we want a fantastic experience for one person. So on the one hand, I get that. On the other hand, it just makes me frustrated that I don't know how this is going to be just trying to have someone else experience it for a few minutes. And will that even be fun for them? This was my rant from two weeks ago. Multiple profiles. It's not that hard. Macs are cheaper than the stupid Vision Pro, and you can put as many profiles on a Mac as you want. I think that part of the problem might be that it is too hard. Just I have a, I just got a feeling. I don't know this for sure, but I've got a feeling just the way that iOS, iPadOS is set up, it doesn't lend itself to multiple user profiles. I have a feeling it's going to be really, really hard to pull off. You know, I could honestly see where you're coming from there. But maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the time. The answer is you buy a device for each person in your family. It's super cheap. (laughs) That's what Apple would love to see. Yep. What I'm looking forward to, I I mean, as much as I'm looking forward to hearing your takes on the Vision Pro once you've had more of a chance to spend time with it, Joshua... I've been kind of just skipping the Vision Pro takes in my podcasts. I've been just moving to the next chapter because I have heard probably like 500 by now. Um, (laughs) And I want to know, six, 12 months from now, are people still using their Vision Pros? That's that's the next question for me. Well, the developers better get on it, right? Because it doesn't seem like there's that much out of the box to keep people interested. Except for the money they paid. So I think they'll still be using it. Sheer utility. Oh, boy. Well, you know, speaking of Apple taking over everything, what what do they call it? Apple Password? Saudi has made the switch, correct? I'm thinking about making the switch. Joshua, what are your, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I have been a 1Password user now for going back a decade. I should check my receipts, but it's been a long time. And I have been an advocate for getting friends onto 1Password because it was – such a fantastic answer to the problem at the time and still now of so many people had a single password for every website or they might add a two or a three at the end of the password for, for that website. And I just checked. I've even done some cleanup. I currently have 1,500 login items in one password. Wow. And that's because I've been meticulous over the last decade. If I create an account somewhere for a job or work. And then, you know, after I leave a job, I'll go call those out. But I, I put it into 1Password because that is just makes my life so much easier. So I'm in there. And then I was texting you and Sadia about this. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I can switch to Apple. There is an w- easy way to export and import. However, <laughs> you must have a website URL address in each login item in 1Password for Apple to recognize it, which is completely fair. But I don't in a lot of them. So I actually started going through now, the going through the process of making sure there's a URL attached to every login that I care about, which turned into, oh, I logged into this website. Eight, do I need Adidas? I logged in here eight years ago. Do I even need to remember this for any reason? Because I, I, so I'm, I kind of want your takes on that. Do you just allow things to disappear and never catalog it again if you logged in once 10 years ago and don't care and there's no credit card attached to it? Or how do you handle that? Um, that's, I guess, one question I'm thinking about. And then the other is, 
I'm thinking I'll make this migration that moving from one password to Apple password manager, security, keychain, cloud access thingy. I don't remember the name. That's why I said all that. <laughs> I think it'll Ultra be easier. Yes. I think it'll be easier for my wife and I because she has been such a trooper that I would passive, passive aggressively say it's in one password for several years straight until she. <laughs> As a trooper, she goes in there and she'll pull out passwords. But what happens is when she creates an account, she doesn't add it to one password because why would you? It takes about a minute to get it in there and you have to decide it's useful later on. So she'll just create an account and then later on I'll have to figure out what the password is when I need to log in. But I think since we only use Apple devices in this home, like we are all on Apple devices exclusively – I think this could make our lives easier that if she needs to log into something, if I need to log in, Apple will remember it and one password is removed from the equation entirely. That's how I'm feeling, but I'm curious if there's anything I'm missing before I go through the work of this migration. Does one password not auto prompt you to add it to one password when you and when you submit a form? It does through extensions, but I've disabled those because they never worked as easily as I thought they would. There was always some kind of friction where it either created a duplicate or it created a modified version. And then the actual data, as we talked before, data integrity matters to me. So I've gone through the painful manual process of always updating it because I stopped trusting any of their extensions. I had problems with the 1Password extensions too, and that's what prompted me to update or uh, migrate. And it wasn't possible to migrate until iOS 17 came out last year because until then I was really relying on 1Password's family features. Being able to share passwords with uh, my wife and kids is invaluable. I have missed 1Password a little bit on my PC, on my Windows machine, but it's not the end of the world. I very rarely need a type of password in there and maybe it's possible to install, like I've got some sort of iCloud drive on there already. Maybe I can get it working there. I don't know. It hasn't been a big enough problem for me to even look at. I've loved it. It's been great. That's No, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. So you've been through a similar journey as me. One password was good for your family and now Apple is good. So that to me says it's probably going to address any core needs that I have. I'm on the annual payment plan for 1Password and I'm I'm up for renewal. So now I'm wondering, do I fork out the money another year or do I switch? And um, I think that the reduced friction could be really helpful because now my son is starting to use the iPad a little bit more. He's starting to need login access to different things. Yeah. And I want him to learn good password etiquette at an early age. And maybe having that be built in would help uh, just make, for instance, I need sometimes access to one of his school accounts. And then he's yeah. trying to remember his password. I don't remember it. And like, no, let's let's set this next generation up for success. <laughs> there is some extra friction. You lose the friction of having the browser extensions getting in the way. And you lose the friction of the price, the monthly fee. I, I'm on a Apple One subscription, so I, I don't see any fee. I'm not sure if it's included in the free iCloud subscription or what that is, but that's less of a burden. But I've also found that when I need to look up a password manually, I'm used to just hitting the keyboard shortcut for one password and it pops up in the menu bar and I can quickly look that up. And getting used to switching into settings and then finding the passwords uh, sidebar item and then also having to authenticate before I can see my list of passwords. There's a few extra steps there. So it's not frictionless. There is still a bit 
of annoyance. But for the most part, the browser integration works just seamlessly. That's mostly what matters to me. All right, what about if you've – here's a scenario that I run into. Um, I'll, I'll use a popular app because it's coming to mind. You've just reinstalled Instagram. Maybe we'll talk about why I'm always reinstalling it. <laughs> you've just reinstalled Instagram Don't and you need, the pass, yeah, you need the password for it. And Sadia, in this circumstance, how does that password appear on the app? Does Apple recognize that it's a password and, and autofill it? Yes, that's exactly right. So so long as the app has correctly labeled the text field as a password field, which is you know required for anything. But yeah, you'll get on iOS the keyboard pop-up and then that row at the top okay. which says passwords. Uh, and then if you're extra lucky, which happens more often than not, it will just come up with the pre-filled username uh, for that particular app that you just tap once. Uh, face ID and you're in. Sometimes I'll have to click passwords and search for the app. Mm. That sometimes happens if I've signed up online and maybe there's a different, slightly different subdomain associated with it, but it's really, that's not hard either. Uh, one thing that is a bit of a pain is cre I found that creating new passwords for new logins sometimes doesn't work real well with saving the usernames. It'll save the passwords on the web. Uh, that's for apps. It's never been a problem, but I found the same thing with one password. I think it's just the way that people code their web forms. Honestly, I don't understand how someone can create a login and not test it with password managers. That seems like the standard QA fare, right? We could talk about password etiquette in general. Like, why does this ridiculous old government or banking app require me to put in a password that is at least 13 characters, at least one special symbol, one alpha, alphanumeric and right. one number. And uh, we will have to link the XKCD obligatory post on passwords here, uh, which is just so fantastic that it's more about the entropy you're creating, which is based on the amount of items in the password, not so much the complexity of the items. The, the reason, I'll give an example. Uh, I'll just get on this horse for a minute. The password, I'm going to just make one up, so I've never used this. Fat Leopards Chase Ducks. That is an incredibly uh, powerful password. It's a ton of characters. It's got spaces in it, and I can remember it. That's a key. Um, an incredibly complicated password with a bunch of symbols in it is technically more uh, has more entropy from a security standpoint, but that password I can remember. And so this XKCD uh, is just... My frustration is when apps require me to put in a capital or a symbol when I have a really good, memorable, long password that doesn't exist anywhere else. So that's, that's my whole frustration there with passwords. <laughs> you want to talk about frustrations with passwords. Yesterday, I, inst I wanted to just get a simple counter app. I'm thinking of just making a counter app with then just making it free because it's come on it's not hard one two three and maybe some backwards functionality like it's but there is nothing on the app store that doesn't have some sort of in-app purchase and the first thing I tried wanted me to sign up for an account oh. did it have sign up in with Apple or did it require username and password it did have sign up with Apple but no way I'm signing up for an account even with hide my email for just a simple functionality of a counter that that is a problem by the way where my my wife will sign up for things and 
There are things that I would give a fake email to because I know it's a one-off that I don't trust them at all. I'm now on some list somewhere that I'm going to get spammed. Um, by the way, I do not like to use sign up with Apple, sign up with Google, sign up with Facebook because it, I feel like I don't own the information that way. So when I'm forced to, I'll actually go into 1Password and say, for this app, I'll, I'll just add a little note that said I had to sign up with Apple. <laughs> so it'll help me remember in the future. But I 1Password digress. does know about that, though. 1Password does have like a specific uh, option to say that you signed in with an SSO. And which SSO? I Which Apple Passwords, by the way, does not have. All right. That's good to know. I haven't even been using that. So cool. I will, I'll check back in once I've made the migration if I have the courage to do so. <laughs> I feel like I need to make my plug for LastPass. Is this irresponsible since they've been hacked? But it was only a backup that got hacked. I just like LastPass. The extensions, they work well and I can configure everything. It never misses a beat. You know, even if it can't catch the email for whatever reason, it'll say, add to LastPass. Would you like to enter in your email up here? And I go, and there it is. And everything's good. I've never lost any data. I'd say LastPass is still better than not having a password manager. Um, I have some concerns about it, but it's about making yourself a smaller target, right? Security is never perfect. It's security versus accessibility, and you always have to juggle those two. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. uh, The story that I read slash heard was that they got their back, like one of their backups got stolen. And so they still had to use your master password to access it, but they could brute force it. Right. So fairly easy to do, but it's still a backup. So if you as long as you go through and change all of your like sensitive passwords, now you're completely safe. It's not like they have any it's not like they have any chinks in their armor or vulnerabilities to access their live data. It was just they lost a backup. somehow. That sounds correct, but I hope no one will quote me on that. that. That does sound accurate, though. But if you're anything like me and Joshua, Joshua just said he has 1,500 passwords in his password manager. <laughs> I've got, I just looked it up, just over 1,000. Like, no way I'm going to update all of yeah. those. That's going to take me a month. Yeah. Forget about it. Yeah. What do you mean by update? Where I'll go in and change the password on the app, and then I'll update oh, it in one password. And you think oh, that's a five-minute, two- to five-minute process per app times a Fifteen hundred apps. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good <laughs> or point. websites. Well, and I was only thinking like, okay, you have to update like maybe twelve at the most, like all your credit card and banking passwords, and like mm. other sensitive. You're, ID you're right. There is going to be like fifty at the top that are most important. The rest I don't right. care. But. How many you really need to change? Yeah. Well, either way, uh, we're running out of time. Um, last little section here. Uh, speaking of, well, not really speaking. Cleaning of up. <laughs> Yeah, kind of speaking of cleaning up, Sadia, you called your podcast list. You no longer listen to podcasts. Why is that? And why should we encourage our listeners to not listen to more podcasts? Hmm? Except for ours. Except for ours. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I still subscribe to our podcast. I I don't know, guys. I was just, there was so much. The queue was so long. I've only got so many hours to listen to podcasts. And I found, you know, I always try and balance, you've heard me talk about this before, I always try and balance my inputs and outputs, right? My inputs being television, movies, podcasts, books, and my outputs being my own creative outputs. You know, I I write screenplays, I write code, and that sort of thing. So I just found that I was consuming a lot of the same information over and over again when it came to... Apple podcasts, when it came to tech podcasts, when it came to podcasts that 
I don't know, I, I have a, a passing interest in. Yeah, I'm sorry, Grammar Girl, but I unsubscribed. It was the ads that pushed me over the edge, to be honest. So it was really just a case of me trying to balance my inputs and outputs. What do you guys do? Do you think in terms of inputs and outputs? And, and how do you make sure that you're not overstimulating yourself with input and never outputting? I go through seasons, so I don't actually usually think about it that clearly as what you're describing, but that is a great framework to have that to be creative, you need some things to come in, but you also need time to allow yourself to create. So you, you need to f- mm. juggle that. I find I often go in rhythms of seasons, meaning I may have a three-month period where I'm listening to 10 podcasts a week, and then I'll go find a great uh, audiobook novel series that I just go for, for three months. I just go listen to those and I do no podcasts or very few. And that often helps me because a year later I'm like, Oh, I'm I, or six months later, I haven't listened to those folks in a while. Let me listen to their podcast again and catch up. And, but what I'll do is I'll unsubscribe from the podcast and see if I desire to bring them back around again to resubscribe. So I, I manually will go unsubscribe to kind of check myself to see, the other way, if I'm still in the I'm listening to podcast framework, I actually will listen at two or three X speed. If I'm kind of, it's almost like having the radio on. I'm kind of interested in catching up, but I don't really care if I miss half of it. And I'll do the dishes. I'll have a pot, uh, AirPod in. And that's a way that sometimes I actually, I want to know like on ATP this week what they talked about, but I don't have three hours, but I, I can listen really quickly and mostly digest it. So that's what I'll use that for podcasts that I care about but maybe i've lost time this week you see to me if you're listening at 3x speed just unsubscribe you're not that interested in it (laughs) why why spend that hour of your life if it's atp that's at 3x it's going to take you an hour why spend that hour sort of half or a third doing something a third listening kind of just tuning in when you could be devoting your full attention to something else entirely but see for me This is often during the period of the day where I'm maybe I'm in design mode where I'm I'm doing full fidelity UI on something and I don't need to think fully about it. And I just want some background noise. So it's often during the I want background noise period of the day where I actually don't really want to listen to something fully, but I kind of like just hearing something. Oh, fair enough. I think I'm kind of like you, Joshua. I am pretty obsessive it's hard for me to stay balanced in any small period of time i feel like over large periods of time i'm more balanced but like right now i'm going through a a novel series and that's all i'm listening to and not podcasts other times it's like it's just this one podcast i'm listening to every day at lunch or it's a news podcast the same guys every day at lunch and that's just kind of how i roll so yeah this is this is my completionist problem too i think you have some of this joshua of i can't subscribe to a podcast and then just have episodes piling up piling up in a backlog it it doesn't work for me i I need to have my podcast backlog cleared before i'm able to then go and listen to an audiobook i i can't well that's crazy i I have some mental installation every episode from a podcast that's why i've unsubscribed to a whole bunch of things (laughs) okay that makes a lot of sense then so I am. I think I'm between you two where I can let something go, but if it goes for more than a couple of weeks, it starts to bother me. Then I'll do the – in Overcast, I'll checkmark episodes where I won't unsubscribe, but I'll checkmark them. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you all have a fantastic week. We'll be back in your episode feed podcast thingy next week. Please stay subscribed and send us an email to email at ultrapromax.fm. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks for coming, everybody. See you next time.